Byers, and this is Successful Associations Today. My guest is J.T. Forbes, a graduate of Indiana University and now the Executive Director of the Alumni Association, a position he's held since June of 2010. I like to follow J.T. because he is always on the cutting edge of things that are going on. Before returning to Indiana University in his current capacity, he served as Director of State Government Relations for Cummins Incorporated and as Principal Private Sector Staff Leader for the United States Brazil CEO Forum. Welcome, JT. It's always great to see you. Same, Mary. It's really nice to check in and see how things are going. Well, I keep you on my radar because you're somebody who never seems to rest and you always keep evolving. And I love that about you. So let's just start with a personal question. What drives you in your work? Uh, learning, learning and um, really getting to watch people grow and thrive are the things that really motivate me. And I can't be a witness to that if I'm not willing to walk that same talk and always be looking to adapt and evolve and grow and stretch myself. Well, it seems to me like the Alumni Association is a perfect place for you then because you are so closely paired with higher education and learning and growth are the underpinnings of that. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I'd argue that until recently, the alumni office was probably one of the most disrupted functions within higher education. And so it's been really thrilling and exciting and challenging, and overwhelming, exhausting, and all that um, over the last decade just to be part of a whole movement to try to shape and steer and guide um, how universities relate to their alumni and how alumni um, relate and connect with one another. So um, this all started because of an email exchange that you and I had, and you just mentioned casually to me that the Alumni Association was rolling out uh, and I quote, a completely new approach to membership that changes the conversation from joining to get stuff to identifying yourself as part of the cause of helping IU and other alumni. So what was the, generation, uh, the genesis of this shift and how is it working? Well, it actually goes back to a decade ago when I took this role. Um, I remember one of the more senior members um, as we were going through kind of the budget and and um, work and program of the association early on, kept talking about membership as a leaky bucket. And I just never could accept that membership should be a leaky bucket. And so we just kind of started looking at it, examining it. And we found that our retention rates weren't what we expected them to be. And, um, and in, interestingly enough, for the most part, we've maintained the same overall number of members over time, but so that number has been fairly steady. It hovers between 58 and 62,000 dues paying individuals. Um, but the population of the alumni has grown by leaps and bounds. So, you know, we're 712,000 alumni now. So that group of dues payers is a relatively small number. And as we unpacked that, we also discovered that we had a high um, number of people whose profiles would suggest a high probability of membership who would sample it and walk away. So we started studying that and we studied it by going out and listening to our alumni and trying to understand what was going on um, with them and what they expected. And what we discovered is we had been developing a transactional relationship. 
So when we weren't delivering the goods because what the expectations were exceeded the cost of membership and in some ways the scope of the resources and influence we had even within the institution on some things, we realized that that just wasn't working. It's that old uh, line from Mad Men. If you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. And what we discovered is the people that were really buying in as life members or renewing did it out of a sense of loyalty because they wanted to help other alumni and they wanted to see the university thrive. And so we started doing some design thinking exercises, some empathy research to really look at what we needed to do to improve the member experience. And that led us to a new way to frame membership that moved us off labeling our members based on their transactions. So like an annual member is what we called them because they paid annually. And a life member paid one time or in installments with the idea that they wouldn't pay again, even though many of them went on to be donors of the university and of the association itself. And so we realized we needed to change that conversation. And so as we did that empathy research, as we tested messages with our alumni, we discovered they were seeking a relationship. So now we have a free category of membership. Well, the cost of that category is the price of sharing your contact information so we can stay in touch. Um, we now have a, a mechanism for paying and supporting the association annually. And then of course we retained life. And then we have a fourth category that's a giving society. And those are now relabeled. One is proud because we want to say to everybody that's proud of IU, we want you to affiliate and we want to communicate with you. Uh, that's all supported and served digitally. We have loyal, which is a category of people who give annually regularly to support the charitable mission of the association. So we don't really, we still have certain aspects of ourselves that operate sort of like a membership organization, but we really have flipped that to be much more about the mission of serving IU and helping one another. And then of course we have life and then an 1854 society, which is a giving society um, that's, that's for those who give beyond life membership to the work of the association. Largely that comes in the form of scholarships. So how does that having changed gone from just the, the two opportunities to join to now having four different categories, essentially, with one of them being free? How has that shifted what the association looks like or how you service members? Well, it's made us more inclusive because that shift means that we're focused on those who opt in. And before you had to buy in to be in. So now you just have to opt in. And so those proud members become, if you will, a prospect pool of people that are seeking a relationship with the university and the association that we cultivate and develop for deeper engagement and regular annual giving, hopefully um, throughout their lifetimes. Um, and, and before we were really um, running a program that was, if we ran it well, was limited just to those who were members that thought they did it to get something. Um, and now you're members of a shared cause of making the university stronger and helping other alumni, which is really when you broke down what we were really trying to do all about that. So it's made us a lot more disciplined and that we're really starting to focus more on proud members. We're not trying to boil the ocean with all alumni, but we are trying to invite as many who want that relationship in and then developing, um, journeys for them. We're still somewhat in the early stages of this. In fact, the dues increases, or excuse me, the, the giving levels 
that we've shifted to. Clearly, we're still new in it because I'm still using the wrong language. But <laughs> those categories of um, those those giving levels um, were just activated the week before all the the state um, and the country essentially shut down. And so we've actually silenced our solicitations. So we don't know if the business part of this um, and the charitable giving part of this is working yet because we've had to put that on pause. But we already have 7,000 people who've opted in through life or through the, excuse me, who we already have 7,000 people who've opted in through this um, proud category, predominantly recent graduates. And we think that's going to grow because with the solicitations on pause, there's still a way for us to get involved and serve people. Um, we've uh, put in play, we're putting in place a series of um, virtual programs as well as some online um, career modules to help people too, because we're seeing what's going on in the economy. We know that people are going to be turning to the university either to seek to help other alumni find work or to be seeking um, work or uh, repositioning and whatever new order comes out of all this disruption. So I want to I want to pause and note something here that I think is worth thinking about for our listeners, and that is you have moved from a buy-in to an opt-in model. So essentially, you've taken out one of the obstacles or barriers that that keeps people outside of the umbrella. But when you pull them in, they're within your sphere of influence now and you have a connection to them. So I, I think that's important. I'm, I'm seeing some groups starting to move towards some sort of freemium option so that it's kind of a, a, a technically a try before you buy um, mm-hmm. uh, option so that you can really see what you're about. And so I think that's important. I think it's also important to note that you are having people opt in and you believe that those opt-ins will grow. I also wanna note, um, and just acknowledge that you really were sensitive to what's happening in the greater environment because of the coronavirus and what's happening. And I I think honestly, for many associations that are not in a position to help with specific virus related business information for members, I think that's, it's it's important. That sensitivity is extremely important, but, but let's go to that since, uh, since you mentioned that, Obviously, higher education has been disrupted as classes have moved online and campuses have closed. So how might this impact your work in both the short term and the long term? Well, it's a great question. Um, We made the choice early on to lead with care and empathy. So we have partnered with the rest of the university to begin a fairly systematic effort to reach out to as many um, alumni and friends of the university as we can just to say thank you for your support and how are you? What's going on in your world? What's this look like to you? We prototyped it with just our core group of governance and um, chapter volunteers, just reaching out, no agenda other than to make sure we understood where they were and if they needed anything. And early on what we discovered is they were so busy adapting and adjusting and preparing and dealing with the situation that they were interested in what was going on, but they had no expectation from anything and from the university at that point. Um, as it's evolved, they've become more interested in what we're doing to be part of finding cures and treatment options and um, what, what our scientists are doing. And so we're partnered with the university on that. But we're now expanding that calling program. We internally call it a campaign of care and concern 
just to reach out and connect without asking for anything other than a welfare check-in on how they're doing. And uh, the, the response has been really um, positive so far. People seem to really appreciate us just saying thanks and also, how are you? You're also, as you're reaching out and showing care and concern, you're also not the purpose, but you're gathering data. You know, as you started hearing back that people want to be part of the solution, they want to know about research and they want to know about science and they want to know about how they can support that. That's valuable research for you and for the university and for the departments within the university that that are, are touching those areas. So I think it's interesting what spending some time on the front end talking and listening can do on the back end, uh, not just for the coronavirus, but for all of the work we do in being responsive to those who are under our umbrella. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I'll even say that I observed in my own experiences, this was all happening, how quickly my email box got overwhelmed with people trying to, and organizations trying to position themselves prematurely in all this. And so there's a lot of um, relationships, business relationships that I had where I just thought it was really um, kind of tone deaf. And um, I think for us, we had the humility to know we needed to listen first before we started talking. Um, and, and above all, back to mission, we knew job one was to get students and faculty engaged in learning. And so that was the thing upon which we were all focused at the beginning. But absolutely, I think this positions us better because we also weren't out there asking or selling or soliciting. We were really out there um, listening eloquently to people. And I think that's going to be come back around to us really in a helpful way. It allowed the university to let go of its own anxieties about feeling like they had to send a message to all alumni about what was going on. So I want to reiterate the words you just said, the listening eloquently, because I remember when you and I first met and you were on the podcast years ago, Listening eloquently were the two words that came out of that 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 I really that stuck in my mind and have really helped inform my work, and that is really the importance of asking first, listening second, and then responding third. Which which basically I learned from you. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, what, what what's the biggest challenge for the alumni association as it goes forward in terms of of innovation? And as for many, we're, we're all now innovating in a new environment. So how does that come into play? Um, I think we have to be innovative while becoming leaner and potentially smaller and smarter. Um, you know, who knows if all the gloomsday economic predictions are going to happen or if all the gloomsday writing about, um, you know, large public research universities and residentially based college programs, you know, who knows where that's all going to play out. But I would say that it's pretty clear for a period, we're going to go through a period of austerity. And so our biggest challenge is how do we pivot uh, with the talent we have? Because it's our goal to put our staff first in terms of not losing talent. But some of that talent's going to have to be redeployed and repurposed around virtual activities because we are very by design into creating on location, um, immersive, close personal contact events with food and all the rest of what you do um, to build community in traditional ways. And so we've got to pivot to do more virtually. And we were, we were 
very well positioned for that with some of the moves we've been making, but it really wasn't moving at the pace that I thought it should. And now that's really accelerated and it's accelerated by giving ourselves permission just to try things. And so we are trying just some real simple things and see what sticks and, you know, um, fail forward, you know, let's try it, learn from what works. If it doesn't work, let's uh, learn from that and make it better the next time. And so uh, that's a lot of how we've approached this, but the, the, the trick is going to be how do you put in place the expertise and the infrastructure to ultimately provide sustainable ways to connect um, digitally. And I think um, that's a question that all associations are, are going to be asking because as pivots occur, they often require a different skill set or different expertise than we have internally. So you mentioned repurposing. That's going to be part of the conversation, but part of the conversation also nece- necessarily has to be do we have the proper expertise in house and how can we get that? And if we do need to be leaner, how can we basically afford it? And so you're, you're touching on, I know, a lot of the things that association leaders all over the place have been thinking about the last several weeks. But what are some of the mantras, maybe just one or two things uh, that you've, you focus on? Uh, I, I suppose you could probably go all day with me on this. Eloquently, <laughs> eloquently listening, I know, is one of them. Um, but, but what are the mantras that you keep in your head as you help your staff be motivated and as you lean into the purpose of the Alumni Association? Sure. Um, yeah, of course, listen eloquently. Um, also, um, we talk a lot right now about few things done well, because, you know, most of us have been had our lives mashed up to where the coworkers we now have are our pets, our partners, our kids, maybe. Um, and, you know, some of them have to be reported to HR. I mean, my dog is sitting around next to me snoring. And so sometimes I think I've got to report them. Um, the other dog's really active, and my wife was on the phone the other day, and I, I thought I was going to have to report her to security. Uh, the dog is the security department. Um, but I think a lot of it is people are very distracted trying to adjust to this. They're worried about people about whom they care. Um, you know, everybody was excited about remote learning, uh, remote, um, excuse me, remote uh, working until you are mashed into it this way. And so we've just really emphasized and accepted we're going to lose productivity because your first job is to care for yourself and the people around you. Um, and so few tasks done well is a mantra we try to really live up to. And it's really hard for a group of outcome oriented helpers and doers to do that. So it's been a huge adjustment to let go and just do the best we can every day. So that's, that's one. The other thing I just always remind myself is that the best leaders really um, create the space for people to make mistakes and learn from them. And when it goes well, you make sure they get all the credit. And when it doesn't go well, you're the one that takes responsibility for it. And so that's just what we've tried to do through this. And I think it's really brought us all, ironically, closer together. We're not physically located together, but everybody feels this sense of being connected and supported and, um, and understood. Because again, when you lead with care and empathy, people will do a lot of things above and beyond because they know you care and you understand their plight. And so- 
Great advice. Great advice. And, um, you know, it is ironic that things that, that are separating us right now are also bringing us closer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's also ironic that this is helping us create stronger value propositions in some ways because we have to be really focused on what, what matters most and where we can make a difference. Uh, it, it, you mentioned distraction, and I will admit that I'm finding it a little bit harder to concentrate than I normally have. So my own routine of reading and reflection has been interrupted a little bit. Um, and you mentioned learning and growth as really important key aspects. IU is one of the largest alumni associations, and they so other alumni associations turn to you for ideas. So where do you and your team go to get ideas and be inspired? And, and especially in a time when learning and growth is being disrupted. Sure. Uh, we get it from a lot of different sources. Um, I find a lot, I mean, I, I, I'm going to start with um, early on, I came across some of the writing that you had done. And that introduced me to the association world because most alumni associations operate as university departments and as extensions of the fundraising operation. We're one of the few that still lives in the interstices of all that. So we've found a lot of the writing and thinking around how associations were really helpful and powerful. Um, it's kind of interesting when we look for new techniques and ways to think about things, we always, because it's a large institution, find alumni. So we've done some strategic planning that introduced us, that we really used as a process to introduce us and train us on empathy research and design thinking. So that's become very powerful for us. We are partnering with our university and our foundation on an enterprise-wide Salesforce marketing cloud implementation. Um, a big piece of that company started with one of our alums. Um, and it's really helped us think through journey mapping at a level that we didn't really think about with design thinking. Um, and then our, our, um, our staff and our alumni are involved in all sorts of interesting fields. So we get a lot of cross-pollinization from, from what we can learn from other areas. And we just really spent a significant amount of our budget on training and development. Most of the things we do with our board really are designed as learning experiences. And, um, and so it's not just everybody getting together to ideate. It's really people leave learning something they didn't know before um, that they can take out into the world. And so it's just really creating that culture where that values uh, learning. And also, again, learning means you have to take informed risks. And so there have been times where we've made big boo-boos. And, and I and the other senior members of the team always give folks cover when that happens. And that's how you create a safe learning environment. So I think one of the things the environment is doing now, though, because all of us are pivoting so quickly and we are moving with very, very slow lead times and tight deadlines in many cases, I actually think it's given us an opportunity to experiment maybe a little bit more safely than we normally have because people are naturally extending understanding and grace where they wouldn't normally do that. But because everybody's operating under duress, I think we're all a little bit more understanding. Do you feel that that's true too? Yeah, you know, I really appreciate you pointing that out because I mean, it, it strikes me that 
there is an upside when the wheels come off. And that's, you can't just keep running at top speed down the road. And I, I agree with you. I think everybody's a little bit more um, mindful. We all appreciate the time we do have to, to think about what we're doing. Um, and maybe it's also realized kind of the, the self-imposed pressures we put ourselves under that ultimately keep us from doing our best work. Again, the, one of the biggest growth experiences for me is having to accept that this, I, can, I cannot control everything as much as I'd like to. I cannot protect everyone as much as I have the audacity to think I could. And ultimately, I have to let go and let this ruthless virus do, do this until we can find a new normal in all that. And so, again, it's like um, Fred Rogers talks about find the helpers. We spend a lot of time thinking about what have we learned about ourselves and others from this experience that we can take forward. Um, and we just try to channel a lot of energy in, in that direction. We've also learned the power of music to get through really hard times. <laughs> I love that, JT. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that. Do you have a, a personal theme song that, that's yours right now? <laughs> well, um, there's actually two songs I think about when I'm trying to make a decision right now about what we should do. Um, if, I, if the song Killing Me Softly comes into my head, I know it's the wrong path. If it's the song lifting me higher, then I know we're going to get through this better. <laughs> All things good and inspiring come from the magic voice of Aretha Franklin. That is what I have learned. <laughs> <laughs> JT, that's a great place to stop our interview today. Thank you so much for being with you me. Bet. Uh, this is Mary Byers, and you're listening to Successful Associations Today. Mm-hmm.